Data storytellers today on the show with me, I have Max Mitral. Max is the go-to-market analytics director at Activision Blizzard. And I was actually really looking forward uh, to this episode and not just saying it because this brand, Activision Blizzard, happens to be very close to my heart. So I'm a millennial, so I grew up playing Diablo 2. Maybe some of the listeners can relate. They remember it was a, an amazing game and uh, it was really about like this cosmic battle between good and evil with demons and archangels and all that stuff and really shaped and formed, actually, I think, my childhood and um, even... It, even my future view on storytelling, I think it was masterful storytelling. I think Activision Blizzard is a very unique company. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm actually as old to to remember how it was only Blizzard at the time uh, back then, but that was a huge merger. Anyways, Max is a very interesting guy. We had a great conversation even before the podcast. And uh, Max, welcome on the show. Thank you for having me, Leslo. So first of all, because uh, you have a very interesting background, uh, most of the audience um, does not know you. So first of all, how did you get into the world of data? What led you to this position that you're in now? Oh, so, uh, so hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for listening. So my name is Max. If you haven't heard it from Max, I'm French. Um, unlike some of the people working in data, I'm not an engineer. So I did a business school. Uh, back then, I did a specialization in business analytics, strategy business analytics. And what led me to it is I wanted to solve real life problems or business problems with data. And my journey has been I work for different various companies. I worked for Michelin, uh, from the region I come from, to the entire company. I worked uh, with Accenture on a rugby uh, project around the Six Nations tournament, which was very exciting. I had a chance to work a bit with Adidas. And then I really came into the world of actual sports, working for City Football Group uh, back in 2016. Um, so it's the holding company of Manchester City Football Club and a bunch of football clubs across the world, or soccer, depending where you're listening from. Um, I joined Formula One uh, back in 2017 after the takeover from Liberty Media. Um, and I recently joined a couple of months ago, Activision Blizzard as a go-to-market analytics director. Okay. So first of all, during your journey, how is this gaming industry that you're in? And probably we won't spend too much time like on the specifics of the gaming industry, but it's a, it's a personal interest of mine. Um, so storytelling in games, it's like crucially important, just as I mentioned that, that game I was in love with. Um, so, um, how is this different for you now compared to being in sports and now working with, uh, with games and one of the, one of the greatest, uh, brands in the gaming industry as well? What surprises people the most is actually extremely similar. As much as people think sports and gaming are nothing alike, the way I see this, they're both part of the entertainment business, and we're both competing for the same thing, which is people leisure time, let's put it that way. I think there's a famous quote from a Netflix CEO a couple of years ago when he was saying that they're competing with sleep. Uh, uh, maybe gaming is actually, to some extent, competing with sleep as well, but that's the idea. So it's not just gaming, it's not just the competitors, it's really entertainment. And that guy, F1, Call of Duty was a competitor, Diablo was a competitor, uh, and to the same extent as the reverse is true today. Uh, in terms of job is extremely similar. The idea as to what my job is, is joining companies that evolve primarily, or used to evolve primarily in a B2B2C business and going a bit more direct to consumer, which led them to collect a vast amount of new data, customer, consumer related, fan related, that they were not used to, and trying to decipher what can we do with it. 
Okay, interesting. So you mentioned also Netflix, and it's a great way to conceptualize it that you are competing for people's uh, leisure time. Now, how Netflix achieves that, we all know that it's a company that was built on data. And uh, the, as data native as anyone gets. Now, this also kind of accelerated the tendency with companies to become more data driven. So there's this whole buzz about companies needing to be data driven. So without leading the witness too much, what does data drivenness mean for you? What do you think about this hype around companies having to become data driven? And from your experience, how, how realistic that is? What should we aim for? What does it even mean to be data driven? I like the hype. I'm really not a big fan of the terminology. And as much as it was painful for people to hear that when I was working at F1, people love to use obviously the pen being data-driven. And there's always answering, well, I'd rather be data-informed uh, for various reasons. I'm sure you're fully aware of all these, but data doesn't give you any answer. It's really prone to interpretation for however you analyze it. Um, and secondly, you can have mistakes, you can have errors, whether human, or whether they are also on the data, your, your time series analysis does that account for the pandemic, uh, or lots of different reasons to why you might be wrong. And I'd rather see this as the insights we create from the data is a piece of information that's being used in decision-making process, as is experience, which is based on more personal-related data from whoever is taking the making decision, and as is lots of other dip, different data points, more personal, more mental, but I think we shouldn't, we should feel free to not follow what the data says if we have bad reason not to. And that's why I'm not a big fan of being data driven. And there's actually a very good example, very sports specific example where back in the 1950s, uh, one of the first person that was collecting data on soccer, uh, what I would call football, but it's, it's English mm -hmm. soccer, um, called Charles Reap. And he ended up formulating a strategy based on the data he had, which is, no more than three passes, which the idea was throwing the ball as close as possible to the opposing net and trying to score very quickly. Because from his data, he saw that most goals were scored after fewer than three passes. What he forgot to analyze is actually all the actions that were not finishing in a goal, they were actually even shorter than that, which actually led to the totally opposite conclusion, which is actually if you pass more, you're more likely to score. And so that's the understanding behind if you're data driven and you jump too quickly to the conclusion, you might miss the point. And that might be disastrous for your business. So I'd rather be data informed. It might be a small tweak, but that's my perception. So that's really interesting because you're a Frenchman. So so football is in your veins. I'm also Hungarian, so we call it football. I now live in Toronto, so I know that there's some dissonance between football and, and soccer. And in my in, in my view, football should be played by kicking the ball with your feet. But it's a controversial opinion here in North America. <laughs> uh, anyways, with regards to this example, so this is very interesting to me. So you say that the general assumption is that the more you pass the ball, the higher your chance of scoring, but the data shows us that uh, actually fewer passes will will uh, lead to uh, lead to scoring. Uh, with me being still relatively ignorant about football, uh, so is that actually the case then? That now coaches, based on this conclusion, do formulate their strategy uh, to have as few passes as possible? So based on the article that I'm quoting, which I think was from uh, 538, which is a very famous data journalism mm -hmm. website. Um, so to be more precise on the data, what it was saying is the average number of passes before a goal is very low, mm -hmm. below three passes. So he made that conclusion, well, why not we try to score with less than three passes because most goals are scored with less than three passes. Mm -hmm. But he failed to realize and analyze the other set 
of the data, not looking at just the positive variables, like in the zero one dummy variable, when a goal is being scored, but looking at all the actions when the goal is not being scored. And the average number of passes for all these actions is actually lower than the other. So as much as it's still small, actually having more passes lead to, 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 to more probability of scoring goals. But the idea is back in the 1950s, especially in the UK, lots of clubs based the strategy based on this for decades. And that's kind of what the article is telling about. It's like it really shapes the English football strategy for decades based on that mistake. The data was right. The analysis was wrong. Mm -hmm. I get it. So it actually delivered that value through informing the, the end users and the decision makers. So that's a nice segue into companies being data informed. So I get it if we kind of get rid of the, the, the buzzword of data drivenness, which by the way, I'm a fan of in general, getting rid of buzzwords. I think this is definitely, I mean, all industries are plagued by jargon. We are in a crusade against jargon too. I think, especially in the data world, if you manage to, to transcend that, uh, you can get just so much done by, by effectively communicating to the business what analytics is actually about. So before we dive into that, what do you think data uh, being data informed means then for organizations? What is a data informed business to begin with? What is that vision in your opinion? What constitutes a truly data informed organization? I would say for any big decisions, trying to always as much as possible see what data is available. What can I what can I use to inform my decision? What do I have available? Sometimes you don't. Uh, one of the things that was very frustrating for me, and I'm sure it's the same for lots of the listeners is some of the decisions you have to make are one of decision and you cannot run an A-B test because there's no other, there's no other way. You either do it and you don't, and you have to best believe that it's going to work because you will never be able to exactly measure. And let me give you an exact example. One of the thing I was working on when I was working for F1 was the starting time of the Grand Prix. And the quick, the big question was, is there a way we can optimize by changing for a couple of hours plus or more, it was a small window uh, that we can optimize for to increase TV viewership. And we did it. We changed the, hour, the timing for European Grand Prix by, I think, plus one hour. And the key question was, after we do it, and after we have the year, how did it work? Well, it's not really like for like. You might have different broadcasters that change from one year to another. You might have a different championship season, different things happening during the track, during the race. It's very hard to actually put an exact number to how much it contributed. We had estimations to how much it would be, and hence we made the decision. But the frustration of not being able to exactly measure because it's a one-off and you cannot do the event twice and run it again with a different timing, that for me is difficult. And that's also being data informed is you have to believe in it, even when sometimes it's very difficult to measure. Mm. So do you think that now, especially looking at the hype and this is a real trend of companies becoming more data informed, Everyone says that this will be the decade of data. And as we know, when this happens, when a trend like this really uh, gains velocity, there will be a lot of losers and a lot of winners. Now, do you see like a growing influence of senior data analytics practitioners in companies? Because you've been around the block, probably as you were like climbing the ladder too, uh, over the years, you must have seen a shift. So do you think there's a growing influence now in businesses when it comes to analytics practitioners? Yes, I want to address what you said about winners and losers. I don't believe it's a zero-sum game. I think mm -hmm. we can all be winners. Uh, so I think that's an important caveat. Yes, I definitely saw a big increase for various reasons. Some of them is the FOMO. It's like, oh, I feel like we're missing out. We need to do something about it. Some of them is actually true top-down vision. It's about, okay, we believe in it, and that's what we need to do it. Uh, and sometimes also the, the change in the industry, and that's mostly what I've seen is 
you have to, you have to collect information on your end consumer on your end fans and if not you just run the risk of being cut off and i think that's maybe one of the main reasons why disney created disney plus they couldn't afford having another platform knowing more about their viewers and the fans than themselves i.e netflix and i think that's also part of the the idea is it has to be both either coming top down from the vision perspective or also a bit of a formal both are moving the needle to be honest which one is better i would say the vision the visionary uh view but you can still achieve a lot on, on the other end as well Hmm. So that's a great point that this is not a zero sum gain and a uh, game. And also as a caveat to what I said, so when we um, um, just kind of assess the reality of after all this hype and all the growing potential in data and analytics, there will still be people who fail to take advantage of this, which is always just kind of sad reality of right now, there's an abundance of opportunity and growing capabilities. And also what analytics can do for businesses is so much different than it was like 10 years ago, or even five years ago. Now, there will be people who can take advantage of that by correctly positioning analytics in their organization, and that will be those who will just miss the mark. So maybe that leads me into my next question of, uh, uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge when a senior analytics practitioner tries to make that transformation happen and actually make these companies more data informed? Because you can have the technology, you can have all that at your disposal and still fail to push that through. So what do you think is the biggest challenge? What's the bottleneck? I feel like what most people outside of the industry might think is the biggest, but isn't, is the technology. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is. I think that's what people mostly think it is because data rings, technology rings, platform price and the like. I don't think that's a problem at all. It might bring difficulties, but that's not the biggest one. The biggest one is the human challenge from both ends, from whomever you try and hire to drive your strategy and to drive what you're going to do with it from also the key stakeholders that are not the data leaders. How do they interact with this person? How do you talk to them? How do you involve them? How do you gain their trust? And that human element from top to bottom, uh, from who also all the key decision makers, not, not just the director levels, also everyone within the system, how do you make them feel comfortable? How do if you put a, a data team within the sales team, like a data analyst, some salespeople might feel afraid. They might feel that they're going to be found out that they're not performing as much based on the new metrics that may be uncovered. So you may have some difficulties in selling your, your ideas and selling and trying to onboard these people. Change management, for me, it would be the biggest challenge. Hmm. So when we think about change management, so there's so many elements. Uh, ultimately, what are you looking to change? So are you looking to change the organization's processes? Are you looking to change the culture? Uh, and I know that these are not mutually exclusive, uh, absolutely, but what is your take on that? So when you think about change management, first of all, before we dive into the the hows and the whens and the whys, it's like, what should you aim at in general? So when you come to an, org to an organization, uh, what should you aim to change first when you want that end result of a data-driven business? Uh, first, but not the most, not the easiest, how decisions are being made. Who takes the big decisions, how they're being made, and how can we be part of that discussion? And again, that's a journey. I'd, I'd be great if you could tackle that first. You're going to have to do a lot of things before doing this, but that's for me the end goal, the main, and if not only goal, uh, is how decisions are being made and how can you influence on them. If they're already good, that you're not going to have much influence, but you'll be part of this process. And that trickles down to lots of different things then. So, okay, then so-and-so is making a decision. What data do they use? Do they need some help? How can they plug in? I've evolved in more, let's say, immature industries, the entertainment, sports, 
uh, industry has been historically more immature in the use of data versus maybe the e-commerce or the banks or some others. And in the more immature businesses, you have to start with a centralized team and you have to try and gather that knowledge, gather that single source of truth. And then you have to try and sell it to everyone. And then as you become more mature, you go more in a hub and spoke and you try to have delegated analysts within single teams that like dotted line with the central team. But it's also like building this knowledge if you're very mature business. If you join a really mature, then it's mostly about the people in the organization. Hmm. So when you want to get into these decision-making processes, you need to identify who's making the decisions. And as you said, um, uh, you got to build that trust. It takes time. It's not easy. So first of all, maybe, I mean, I would like to ask you about how, how do you get into this conversation then? But first, maybe assess it from uh, what's in the way. So why do you think that those very savvy, very uh, qualified analytics practitioners who know all about the technology, have a really good grasp on the algorithms, um, can really manage the data science and analytics processes, and it still don't manage to gain that position to influence the decision. So what's in the way? What do you think is usually the disconnect? Well, the massive disconnect is the soft skills. At least in my, in my opinion, the, the hard skills, so the skills of coding, analyzing, being good at machine learning, or all the terms that you can throw into, into that definition, for me, this is a, a necessary but not sufficient skill. And I don't think it yields uh, a linear results. I think there is there is there is the bottleneck, there is like a an asymptote, a maximum that you, that you can reach the results you can extract from these diminishing returns, let's put it that way. On the other hand, the soft skills, our way I see it is very exponential. And I think it comes from the idea of the value, the, the value creation. Value creation doesn't just come from the analysis and finding data results. It starts before us to frame the problem. What is it we're trying to solve? And that's the business problem. It's not a data problem. Then transforming that business problem into a data problem, finding the data solution, and that usually people really can't find data between these two things, data problems, data solution. But then you also need to take that data solution, making it a business solution. Let's say I build a churn algorithm to predict very accurately, what's the probability of each of my, let's say, my subscriber business, subscribers to churn, what do I do with it? And I, I think that decision or that, that, that analysis and what do I do with it still needs to be done within the analytics sphere. And you cannot just deliver, here's the algorithm, the business stakeholders and expect them to do something with it, or at least if you don't hold their hand and try to work with them with it. Okay, can we try all different techniques to, to, to keep people that we think are going to churn? Actually, do we want to try them? Do you, like all the different more business related takeaways and conclusions and actionable recommendations from the data, I think because it doesn't work, from what I've seen, it's not as efficient as it could be. If you just stay fixed within data problem decision, you need to be in the business problem, defining what the business problem is, and then in the business solution. And you have to encompass the whole value creation journey. So how do you approach this? Because you have a really uh, good background in this with brands like Michelin and uh, uh, Adidas or Adidas, as uh, it's called in North America, another an, another difference in the pronunciation. Um, you've been with Accenture in the UK, one of the biggest consultancy companies. So I imagine that you were in this position many, many times, man, you had to initiate and you had to engage the business. How do you approach this? So how do you make sure that you're building the right solutions for the right people at the right time that they will actually adopt? Where do you begin leveraging some of those soft skills? 
So business partnering is the key word. So there are two case scenario. Either you're in a type of business where lots of people are banging on your door, banging on your door and asking for tons and tons of things. Or on the other way, no one is, is asking you anything and you have to sell your projects. On the first one, I mean, none, none is better, none is worse. But the first one is about really prioritizing and also really, again, working a lot on the what is the business problem. Because more often than not, people will come to you with solutions. This is what I need from you. This is that extract. This is that data. This is that analysis. This is this number. And you have to be willing to engage the discussion and say, okay, what do you need it for? When do you need it for? What decision are you going to make with it? And that makes people more uncomfortable asking this decision, especially if it's someone very higher up asking this. Because that answer to these questions might change what exactly you're going to do at the end of the day. So, oh, actually, this is really what you're trying to do with it. I think you should look at this number or that number and then be part again of the full process. So that's more just people getting, being on the door and also being able to prioritize, you know, based on how much value you think is going to bring to the business. More often than not, I, I guess it's the parallel low. 80% of your work yields 20% of your results and the other way around. So trying to, or again, prioritize and based on man hours and how many people you have on your team, how you can do this. The second scenario when no one's really being on your door, it's more about having discussion with these key stakeholders. What's keeping them up at night? What's the biggest problem? And then based on your knowledge on the data, trying to see, okay, can I plug anything in there? So one of the things, for instance, that I did um, at F1 around these lines was no, from a, from a TDRS perspective, no one really being on the door and asking specific questions or nothing really groundbreaking. So I ended up talking to, to our director and uh, on a given year, it was like, oh, actually, we have five of our biggest markets out for renewal in the next 24 months. This is a massive challenge for us because it generates big chunk of our revenue. I said, like, oh, that's great. And we can help. We can do little things for you. And then we ended up doing like a, a data analysis to understand what drives the contractual value. Because one might think, what's the good contract is a bad one? You can say, well, depending how many zeros are on the check, I can tell you which one the good and the bad ones. What I wanted to assess is like more like the ex goal, the ex ex expected goals in football. What is the expected value for that market? Because we know we have some markets where more fans and it's a bigger TV market than some others. So maybe I'm, I'm throwing random numbers here just for the audience, uh, nothing real. Maybe 40 million in the UK is not enough because it's worth 60. So if you do send that, maybe 10 million in Croatia is amazing if it's worth five. That's the type of analysis we're trying to do. And that's the thing that they have very good experience. The person who's the director there is, is, is amazingly amazing. He's been there. He's been doing his job for 20 years. He has a very good understanding of what's the good and bad contract, but that wasn't, he didn't have the data to back it up. And so we can't try and provide him with the right analysis to support his first gut fitting and try to compare and say, okay, maybe I can try and squeeze a bit more from that one, or I need to be careful with this one. And that's the type of analysis on, on the second end, when no one's really banging on the door, you have to onboard the key decision maker. And unfortunately, if they don't like you, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible. Okay, so that's a great, great point to then maybe dive into a little bit of, yeah, absolutely. This is ultimately uh, what sales is about. A lot of people think that sales is kind of like about pressure tactics and manipulating decisions and all that stuff. It is simply not true. So it's never been the case. The archetype of the, 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 the ready 70s used car salesperson is just a meme, right? It's, it's not how people make decisions. Uh, as you said, if they don't like you, they won't buy into your idea. They won't buy into you. So again, uh, what do you think? How, how how can you make sure that they are open? 
fewer initiatives, that they want to embrace what you're saying. And we can explore some of this, some of these elements around relationship building. So how, how can you make sure as a data leader that you are well-received, that people are open to what you're trying to say, and that they are looking forward to working with you? You have to understand their problems. You have to understand their lives. You have to understand what 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 issues are dealing with on a daily basis, even those that are not related to you at all. And then you have to identify what all the levers you can pull to make their life easier or to make them shine. What makes them look good in the business? What is the, what are their KPIs for the end of the year? How can you improve on on some of them? So they they need to see you as someone's going to help them. At least that's my that's my take. That's how I'm trying to do it. Is whatever I can do to help them. Small or big, sometimes it's something small and it just makes their life easier and it doesn't require much, much time. And then maybe they do, maybe on Monday before the weekly meeting, they spend an hour doing data analysis because they need to show numbers and they just don't like it. And if you end up doing it for them, making their life easier, they're going to be grateful and then they're going to be more willing to listen to your proposal later down the line. It doesn't have to be a big thing. I think it's also like building relationships and, and being a nice person as well, as much as possible. <laughs> mm, got it. And then in this uh, constellation, uh, you already mentioned trust. So uh, do you have any other thoughts around uh, the efficacy of building trust as a data leader? What does it require? So we already talked about asking the right questions. But then as you go along in that journey, and this is this takes time, as, as we talked about it, because first you gather the information, then you assess which projects to prioritize, what to build. But from that point on, if you really want to implement that holistic change of a company be, uh, becoming data informed, how can you make sure that you build that trust over time as well? Do you have any other thoughts around that apart from asking the right questions? It's a good question. I don't think I've done A-B testing because I don't want to run the risk of no building trust to see what it looks like. Um, I, I do personally believe though that it's always more efficient if it comes from the top. And that unfortunately is not something you can really foster. And usually you don't really have time with the CEO either and to try and bore them as to what, what you want to achieve. But however higher up you can achieve and however you need to involve that person that you can reach to, reach out to, that's the higher up person you can talk to. And then it trickles down because then sometimes you also, anyone can feel some pressure from middle management. It's not because they don't like you, it's because they have crushed in between lots of different things from the bottom and from the and from the up, and they don't have time for you. As much as they might think that you can help them, they just don't have resource nor time to allow, to look at you. So if you can try to onboard the managers and not again, not trying to be to go behind their back, but trying to make sure that they the manager sees you as a resource, and then it creates that more like, oh, why don't we reach out to Max and see what it can help you with? And like trying to also tackle the same thing from different angles, I think is always a good strategy. But after me, that's a tough one. I wish I could be a better a psychology practitioner in that sense. <laughs> yeah, we that, that's our ambition, all of us, right? And this is actually what we are aiming to explore here, the data storytellers. You talked about psychology, even if you look at our logo, it's the two different sides of the brain, the, the right brain, the creative brain, the storytelling brain, and then you have the, the, the left brain, which is more uh, analytical, deals with statistics and logic and with the right combination of the two, then you become more influential because you can engage people's imagination. And at the same time, you can back your claims up by cold, hard data. Right? It's more, it's both a science and an art. So uh, just kind of circling back to uh, that element a little bit. So um, with uh, building trust over time, how did you find, like, did you find yourself having to 
pitch data analytics to people? Did you did you find yourself having to sell it? And uh, I know that sales again. We talked about it how it might have ne negative connotations, but it's a reality that you uh, need to adopt. Um, did you find yourself having to having to sell, having to pitch data analytics in the company to certain individuals? It depends. So uh, F1, for instance, it was very easy because I joined after the takeovers. Lots of people were new and everyone was super on board. And most people, not all of them, most people were new as well. So they saw that like, well, that's a great way for me to make a, make a mark for myself. That was super helpful. In some previous companies before, I've seen a bit of all. And I've seen people that have been more afraid of change. And that was very difficult because they're like very reluctant. And I really had to go the extra miles to spend time together, understanding all the fear and making sure that I'm not going to snitch on anyone uh, and because that was their fear, to be honest, like that I would show whoever is good performer in the team or not based on the numbers. And that I obviously never did, even though I was asked for it, but like building that, that trust. Uh, but it really, it really depends. I think one thing that I'm very grateful for that I didn't have very issues with is I think one of the biggest challenges sometimes is when you have an already set IT team and IT tools, and then you have to change them. And that is very painful and thankfully i didn't have to go through this much i did a little bit but nothing big i've heard stories from one of my uh friends uh, working in that sphere they've been much more difficult i think it's more painful because then you hit the we've always done it that way sentence and then you hear it a lot and that one is very difficult to go against um so thankfully i didn't have to go through this and more, more than not i've had very uh positive environments with that way Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned that uh, change management is the is the biggest challenge, and we are talking about change management, changing people's uh, perceptions. The culture itself is just a set of uh, set of behaviors and beliefs that you aim to transform. And storytelling uh, does exactly that. So when you say that, oh, I heard a moving story, the story really moved me. That means that it changed you. It changed how you view the world, and it moved you. So it, it took you from point A to point B, wherever wherever point B is. So so uh, maybe like a little bit more of a pointed question about storytelling. Have you ever thought about storytelling as a data analytics practitioner in an intentional way? Did you see this as something that you need to cultivate as a skill? If you just happen to use storytelling, did you find that useful? Like, what are your thoughts about the importance and role of storytelling for data analytics practitioners? I would say it's amazing. I would say it's something that I'd love to work more on, to be honest. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm not bad, but I don't think I'm amazing at it. The one element of it that I think I do a lot, but I think it's just one very small part of storytelling is really adapting your, your speech to whoever you're talking to. And that for me is very key. And I'm doing that a lot. I had the experience of talking to someone very higher up in, in, in the sales, uh, role that didn't really like numbers that made obviously my life very difficult, but I like to, I had to summarize the recommendations without using any number because that person was just not comfortable. And I kind of predated on this. So it's like, that was a challenge, but that's something that's taking on. I could see that a very difficult change because obviously once you lose, start losing people and they don't listen to you anymore, you just quickly change how you, how you communicate. I think I can be better off storytelling wise, but the one thing I like doing from a storytelling perspective is using behavioral economics tricks, let's put it that way. Whereas instead of framing something, you want something to happen in your business, let's put it that way. And you think that the business can generate X amount more money, whatever that is, instead of saying, well, if we do this, we're going to generate X. If we don't start doing that, we're going to, we're going to keep losing X every year or every quarter or every month. And like framing as a loss. And again, it's a small thing, but there's lots of small things that can make in aggregate a big impact. 
or like the fact that we know every data practitioners know that there's lots of confidence intervals and nothing is really as, as exact, especially when we talk about predictions. And so let's say you think something within plus minus 10% confidence interval is going to be three times the results of whatever you're trying to achieve. If you say about three times in a meeting, or if you say 3.12, people are going to trust more of the latter, as, as weird as it sounds, but you convey more confidence into your remark. And so these are the small things that I try and do. And again, this may not be storytelling per se. It's like what everything and put into my corner to, to achieve the objectives I'm trying to, to achieve. Hmm. Oh, it's absolutely storytelling. So that's uh, th that's actually a great way of approaching it because people think that you know storytelling is about okay once upon a time. Well, and well, that's like a very specific case of storytelling. Uh, but storytelling is very holistic. Again, I don't like to throw th throw these big words around, but it is, which just means that you cannot really segment it into a particular small box, but you need to look at it. Uh, in, in a big picture way. So I always like to look at storytelling as this Trinitarian model, which means that when you tell a story, there are three key areas where you can and should focus. One is the storyteller, like who the story comes from, because you're being perceived in a certain way and it matters where the story comes from. When someone listens to you, they see you and they do evaluate uh, whether what you what you're saying to begin with is worth listening to. So there is that section that you could uh, really focus on and make sure that you're being perceived in the right way. Then the second element is the who hears the story, who receives the story. So this is where the empathy part comes in, like both on a strategic level, but also a tactical empathy of asking the right questions, taking real interest in that person, really preparing the relationship for that seed to find like a fertile soil. And that seed itself is the story that you're telling. That's the third element, right? So the storyteller, the storytelling <laughs> who receives, and then the story shared between them. And then good storytelling, of course, has powerful and a life field language that actually gauges the attention and inspires the imagination. So absolutely, when you, when you mentioned these things about focusing on the other individual and then what kind of story am I telling? What captured uh, like my attention is, for example, when you talked about the movement that I can uh, point to a particular tendency of, look, th this is the, the state of the world right now. And if things continue this way, then this is how how you will end up. And that's the threat. Human beings are kind of like the T-Rex. The if, it, if it doesn't move, they don't even see it. If it's not a threat, then they don't take notice, right? So, so that's really, really interesting to me. When we uh, talk about uh, change management. So do you see yourself as a data champion, a data evangelist in that sense? And if so, uh, like how intentional should you be about evangelizing analytics in the business? Or should you just focus on, let's say, building the right solutions and the evangelism takes care of itself? I would say the latter. I'm a bit afraid of the, of the, of the, of the word, to be honest, evangelist. Mm. Uh, I don't know why, maybe it's just personal. So uh, I'll be afraid of that etiquette, but it's definitely what I'm doing, 100%. Mm. Um, and I would say it's a side job, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I may not be paid for it, but for my for my job to work, I need, I need it to happen, so I make it happen. Mm -hmm. uh, let's put it that way, but yeah, it's absolutely key. And again, one thing is, which I think is very important is the terminology. I think we discussed this in the mm -hmm. beginning, but so we're using the right words. And one thing that I've realized from the non-data practitioners, put it that way, some words are very scary. Machine learning, extremely scary. Algorithm, no idea what that is, very complex. And trying to demystify these words and make it super simple. Like, guys, 
this is not complex. Complex is the opposite of what I'm doing. And that's what we always trying to sell. And that's sometimes counterintuitive for people who are more junior in the roles because they're very proud of how complex the model is. But what I'm saying them is don't say that ever because people are not going to buy into it. Then you need to make it look simple. You need to make it look understandable. Um, and that for me, demystifying is part of the evangelist role and making it simple. It's like, guys, we're not, we're not magicians here. We're working hard data and, and some things we're doing are not, are not working. Some are, some are working. And I was trying to do that, sir. But for me, it's a big part of the job as well. Hmm. So that's actually a great way of viewing it of, okay you have a certain set of phrases and language that you work with on a daily basis. And then there's the user who's far from that reality. So if you almost in an arrogant way, come in and expect them to be open to what you're saying without meeting them where they are, they will shut you out. Not even necessarily explicitly, but subconsciously, you're, like your punches just won't land. So that's great that you take that effort to, to get closer to them. Now, on the other hand, we hear about building data literacy in a company, which which ultimately like, does the opposite of bringing the users closer to you a little bit. So what do you think about this idea? Because it's relatively new, I would say. I mean, we've been in this space for, for years. Data literacy has been around, but uh, there's almost like more buzz around it these days. So how do you see data literacy? For, for example, what do you think it means to be data literate, first of all? And should you make a concerted effort to upskill the organization and make the organization more data literate? It's a good question. I would say, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong on what data literacy exactly means, mm -hmm. but rather than trying to teach words and definitions, as much as it's very helpful, I'd love to teach people what questions they should ask when someone presents them a piece of information or a piece of insights or a piece of analysis. You know, the basic top 10 questions to ask, what's your sample size? Like, when was the data being done? Like all, all these not super complex, but important questions, because then you can uncover some things that, oh, you only have 200 people, uh, for that, for that big number that you're trying to throw at me, plus 40%, whatever that is. And like these type of questions might, might be interesting because it can, I guess it means being data literate, actually, to be honest, being able to teach people what questions they should ask to the data analyst or whomever is presenting them with some numbers. Because the interesting thing is, and I, it's also part of a bigger topic, everyone deals with data every day. They may not be data practitioners, everyone open Excel at least once a day, if not one, once a week for sure whatever the job, really every job. And so everyone has to deal with some information, some data at some point. And so making them aware of the dangers. And I think especially what bugs be uh, something that is a big interest of mine is the data visualization and how you can openly lie with graphs and depending how you cut it. And that I find it really annoying with someone, and that's, I guess, using the confirmation bias and someone trying, trying to prove a point because that's their point and they're trying to find whatever data to confirm it and to shape it that way. That is very difficult, but like teaching people these things, like the, the different biases that exist uh, within people, but also within data, how you can use different sets of, of stats to, to, to tell a different story than what the reality is, which a lot of people do, to be honest. Hmm. So data visualization, that's an interesting uh, topic. A lot of people, when they hear about, for example, us, the data storytellers, their uh, immediate assumption is that we work with how to tell a story about, uh, around certain data sets. Now, maybe on the level of the principles of good storytelling, you would be able to discern how to do that, even though we don't focus on that specifically. So data visualization is a very interesting concept. First of all, I have just a few questions uh, around this. I didn't plan them, but I would be genuinely curious. So for you as a senior executive now, so you're 
on director level, working with go-to-market analytics. So during your career, how often did you have to use data visualization intentionally? And is it something that you do during your work to, let's say, get stakeholder buy-in? Or is it something that your team does maybe and the data scientists and the, and the data analysts? Both. Uh, I do it on a more higher level and usually less is more, to be honest, is whenever I feel like a, a graph or a data visualization might be more impactful than, than a number on a slide, to be honest, or in an email, I show it if it really tells the story easily. I'm usually more concerned about it because what I'm afraid of is anything that raises more questions than answers is a no-go. And usually that's what happens with data visualization. Uh, but it has to be done. It's also a bit of a, maybe from a data literacy topic, it's about, about the enabling people to also do uh, analysis themselves, having access to, to the data and then having dashboards around, they have pros and cons and who needs to use it and what, what for, because then you're not, you're not in, in the business uh, action recommendation process. If they take the data for what it is and they might make wrong assumptions on it, that is a big topic as well. I guess it, it very depends versus type of organization, type of business. But I'd say more, I try to use it carefully and wisely, put it that way. Hmm. So carefully and wisely, this uh, kind of reminds me of a conversation uh, that I had with uh, one of the senior executives that we work with, Glenn Hoffman. So shout out to you, Glenn, if you, if you listen to this. He is the chief analytics officer at New York Life. It's one of the biggest insurance companies in the uh, in the US. And uh, Glenn is a very seasoned professional. And when this uh, topic came up of data access and working with dashboards and really enabling users to work in data, data-driven or data-informed ways, um, he was actually a little bit uneasy about the phrase of data democratization. He said that he's he has kind of a contrarian view on not necessarily having to, or uh, we shouldn't necessarily democratize everything because for example, you don't want to democratize the brain surgery. So how do you view this uh, uh, topic uh, when it comes to data access, giving, giving the users access to data and, and enabling them and inspiring them, encouraging them to work with data? Uh, do you see this as data democratization? Do you think it's always like a net benefit? Is it something that a senior data practitioner should always aspire to, to make, make data as democratic as possible? Or maybe you're on the position of a brand like Apple, where they always like to kind of restrict the users, even in their social media presence, they are very, very strong with the message control. Uh, where do you stand on this? Are you more liberal, uh, like Google and be, be, be open source all the time with everything, or be a little bit more focused on the user journey? I could not agree more with Glenn, uh, to be honest. Uh, I'd be more careful for the simple reason that, again, one my mentor is, does it raise more questions than answers, or more answers than questions? If the answer is yes, it brings more answers than questions, then yes, all for it. But then it, it needs to be for a set of users that you kind of vetted and you know that they're going to they understand how it works and what's behind this. If you end up giving it something to everyone, you're just open to lots of misuse, at least in my perspective. And I guess I've worked in more, again, immature businesses, which may be more prone to happen. If you're like a Google, obviously it's way more mature. So that might obviously the maturity of the business might impact the my, my view on this, but yeah, I'd be very careful. doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. Absolutely not. But it has to fulfill a specific purpose. And I think just doing it for the sake of doing it, I'm not convinced. 
Mm, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So with um, increasing data access and also with the acceleration of data-focused uh, and database capabilities expanding at a, uh, at a rapid rate, what are you most excited about right now uh, in the industry? Uh, if you look at your journey as a data analyst practitioner and the current realities, uh, what are you most inspired about if you look into the future? Well, it sucks me a lot, but I think I haven't reached that yet. Uh, I may never will, but it's combining what machines are amazing at and likewise what humans are really bad at, combining big numbers and creating predictive algorithms and the like, with what humans are really good at and machines are not really good at, creativity uh, and, and all the all the things that are more human skills that are hard to, hard to give to, to a computer. I try to combine that. And what really excites me is... So, on that line is innovation. So taking a really innovative idea, trying to test it, trying to optimize it, making more of a product, and then making like optimization around it and just ship it. That what gets me excited. Um, so like if you find a way to identify different subsets of users based on a very smart way, and then automatize something that's going to yield revenue and optimization, that's what really gets me excited, especially maybe because as I work in immature businesses, I have limited limited teams and limited budgets so i need to find a way to automatize to make it work i can have something taking too much too much dev time um but from a bigger perspective what i'm more scared of which is i guess the flip side of your question is too much data as as, as a reason might sound then you get lost and then you have no idea what to do with it how to use it and and keeping keeping you here close to the ground uh, on the business side on business pools and being close to whoever makes the decisions is important because you can get lost in building dashboards forever. Um, so I'd say these two things. So just on on top of that, so um, I think because I, I could talk about these topics all day, unfortunately, we have a limited time, or maybe we can continue the conversation um, uh, in a different capacity in the not too distant future. But now, uh, based on your experience, and with all these opportunities and risks in mind, what would be your top recommendations for the aspiring data and analytics leaders of the future? So what should they focus on? What should they prioritize? What should they watch out for in order to be as successful as possible? Not that I'm not sure how to do it, but I would say focus on your soft skills. And data storytelling is one of them, especially the way you describe it. I really like that. And uh, empathy, which I guess is part of data storytelling as well, is understanding whoever is the main business stakeholder, understanding how a business works. And again, that's nothing to do with data, but for me, it's absolutely key to success. And again, you have to be good enough in terms of data, and you can always get better on your hard skills. But for me, the soft skills is really what's going to cut it later down the line. At least that's my perspective, and that will be my best advice. Perfect. So I think that's a good note to finish on as well. Max, this was uh, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed uh, your insights. And then hopefully we will hear from you. Uh, maybe you can share a, a data story or two uh, with our members as well. Will do. Thank you so much, Leslo.